but Christmas is about joy. And we're looking at the Gospel of Mark and we're looking at his announcement at the beginning of his Gospel saying, good news, the Gospel, good news, amazing news. Jesus has come. That he has come as the great divine king to heal the world. We've been looking the last few weeks how Jesus came, that God himself came to bring his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. His kingdom is simply to heal the world of all the brokenness, all the injustice, all the pain, that God cares so much about you and us. He doesn't sit outside suffering, he comes in to do something about it. And he's come, and we saw last week, he came to fix the fundamental problems of what is wrong with humanity, what is wrong with our world. He went to the cross to defeat sin, evil, and death on our behalf. This is why he came. And then throughout Mark's gospel, he says, therefore, follow me. If you want to come into my life, if you want to be part of this healing journey, if you want to experience life as I created it to be, follow me. Someone said to me last week, okay, what does it mean, though, to follow Jesus? I understand kind of believe, I understand to confess, I understand this baptism thing, but Jesus talks about coming into his life by following him. And throughout Mark's gospel, Jesus is clarifying again and again what it means to follow him. And so before we break for Christmas, we're going to look at what, it, what Jesus means, how he describes what it means to enter into his life by following him. So we're going to look at how Jesus defines it in Mark chapter 8. Now, we have a new tradition here at Vintage beginning this Sunday, which is normally uh, we don't carry big Bibles around with us as we go out for brunch, right? And so uh, normally we put the scripture, the Bible on the screen, which we will. But if you look under the seat in front of you, I'm going to remind us that the Bible used to be in written form. <laughs> and uh, if you don't have one, then I'd love you to get out your Bibles. And if you don't know where to turn, we're going to turn to page 1076. 1076. And we are going to read. Now, here's the thing. If you do not have a Bible, I've specifically chosen this Bible because I think it's brilliant. It's got some notes at the bottom. It's got some, I love the notes because I get lost sometimes in the Bible. And I got there's some good explanations of things. So if you do not have a Bible, you can take this home with you and read it and bring it back. <laughs> Thief. No, I'm only joking. You can have it. You can have it. Right? You can have it. It's our gift to you. All right, so 1000, page 1076, the second column, we're going to read from verse, that little verse 31. Jesus predicts his death. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Look, then he called the crowd to him, along with his disciples, and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must 
deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Let's pray. Keep it open, because we'll look at it together, but let's pray. Father, we pray that we come to your word, that you open our eyes, open our hearts, open our minds, that we may understand, but also encounter you. That this is not simply a book study, but as we study your word, we encounter you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This is really fascinating confrontation between Jesus and Peter. Throughout Mark's gospel, Jesus has been inviting his disciples to follow me, leave everything behind and follow me. And yet we see Jesus explaining to Peter that he's going to go to the cross and he's going to die. He's going to have to defeat evil and Satan and death on humanity's behalf. But Peter objects to this. We saw last week how Peter had different expectations of what he wanted Jesus to do and to be. So Peter rebukes him. But Jesus says these words, get behind me, Peter. He calls him Satan, not in the fact that he is Satan, but he's acting like Satan to confuse our position in response to Jesus. Jesus has been saying, follow me, Peter. But at this point, he's saying, Peter, you're kind of out of position right now. You're kind of telling me what to do. You need to fall back behind me. You need to follow me, not follow you. He then goes on and explains. He says, look, if anybody wants to be my disciple, let me just clarify a few things. If anybody wants to be my disciple, and if you look in verse 34 in your Bible, where it says, if anybody wants to be my disciple, literally in the Greek, it's whoever wants to be behind me. It's this continued play on words that Jesus is using. Look, if you want to be behind me, not in front of me, this is what it means. If you want to be behind me and follow me, it means actually two things. It means you've got to Deny yourself and take up your cross. If you do this, he said, then you'll find life. You'll find that I bring this amazing life into you, that you find meaning, purpose, significance. You receive my forgiveness and reconciliation with God. This is the life that I can give you. But only if you follow me, and to follow me is actually to deny yourself and take up your cross. Now for years, growing up in the church, I thought this sounded absurd. I actually was really confused about this. What does Jesus mean to deny yourself? Is it um, like, just don't do things you like? Is it kind of, oh, I wanna be kind of an actor, but oh no, I gotta deny that and be a pastor type thing. What is, what is it, is it to deny desires? Is it to deny your goals, ambitions, dreams? deny. I don't understand what he meant. It seemed strange. But of course, Jesus isn't meaning we desire the good things that he has, that we deny those desires. What he means is, is not to deny yourself, but to deny your self. It's to deny self, not yourself. 
It's what he meant when he said to Peter, look, you don't have in mind the things of God. You only have in mind your own things, your own selfish things. It's that you're putting you first before Jesus. See, the fundamental posture of following Jesus is this radical call to move from self to Jesus. It's actually to move from seeing your primary allegiance in life as your own self-determination and to give up the authority of your life to Jesus. In other words, all throughout Mark's gospel, he's been showing that Jesus is the Messiah, the King, like the Old Testament kings who ruled. So God has come now to rule, to bring his kingdom on earth. And what is the authority structure of a king? Well, the king's in charge. And to come into his kingdom, you have to put him in charge of your life. It's to move from self-autonomy to Christ's authority. To die, literally, to carry a cross, to die to your own rights over your life. It's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says. When Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. Jesus' invitation is to life. He says, I created you. I love you. I've come to save you. I've come to rescue you. I've come to die for you. I've come to defeat sin, evil, and death for you. But the way to receive that, the way to come into my kingdom is literally to take the crown off your own head and cast it before him. Crown him with many crowns. Now, I don't know about you, but in our culture today, this sounds absurd. This sounds so alien to us because we live in the culture of what philosophers called the autonomous self. That the way to happiness, joy, and freedom is the opposite of what Jesus is saying. It's actually to make sure we are the only people with the crowns on our heads. Life is found when we are the boss, when we're in charge, when we are the captain of our own soul. Human flourishing and my own personal flourishing is when I do what I want, when I want, why I want. It's I trust only my feelings and my own intuition. I live my truth. I say to others, I want them to say to me, you be you, do what works for you. And of course we do this because so much of life we've come to distrust any authority figure outside of ourselves. I've got great empathy with this lack of distrust for any authority figure. You know, we look at governments with their agendas. We look at news cycles with their biases. We look at corporations with their hidden greed. We look at institutions with their ongoing prejudice. We even look at churches with pastors with power trips, with spiritual abuse or moral failures in hypocrisy. I don't know about you, but have you ever looked at authority and went, I just don't trust anyone? Over COVID, we saw this rapid distrust infect our health system, where you had doctors saying a hundred different things, and everybody just basically saying, you know what, we live in the autonomous self, I will be the king of my own life. We therefore look at Jesus and go, and any religious system, and we go, well, we may borrow from that religious system, that spirituality that we are in connection with, but we will never cast our crown before it. We'll only see it as something to serve us. It still has to fit in the paradigm of it follows us. We don't follow it. 
And therefore, even in our relationship with Jesus, we can see Jesus as we can reduce him away from king to wise teacher, to spiritual guide, to divine consultant, to cosmic genie. In other words, we like what he has to offer, but we still are in charge. We get to define him how we want to define him. And yet in the midst of this, when Jesus finds Peter doing this to Jesus, it doesn't go well with Peter. Jesus refuses to be boxed into our own definition of himself. He even rebukes Peter. He says, you can't. You can't say you follow me and yet you demand I follow you. Jesus is challenging Peter's autonomous self as he does our own autonomous self. And in fact, we don't need much convincing that autonomous self doesn't really work. In this cultural moment where we're throwing off every outside and external authority, whether it be religion or government or parents or traditions, deep down we know that we are not designed to thrive as autonomous selves. It's why there's such an explosion in the demand for life coaches and therapists. It's why Jordan Peterson said he, he called his book, whatever you feel about Jordan Peterson, he called his book 12 Rules for Life. Because he says in this vacuum of people being told, kind of you just make up life, there's this hunger for, will someone actually give me some wisdom? We all know deep down that we're not created to make things up as we go along. And in fact, there's aspects of our lives where we know we do not have what it takes. There are aspects of our lives where we even recognize, I need an expert. I need actually to follow someone. I need to put someone else in charge for this to go well with me. I remember when I realized this in a very simple way when I was working in a law firm years ago and I used to get very jealous with people who went out and played on these golf days with clients. I'd be working, I'd be covering everyone's work because I couldn't play golf. I grew up in a culture where playing golf was out of reach, out of touch. It was kind of like walking on the moon. It was just like golf. And so when I went to this law firm, I was so envious of these people going out, spending days out with clients playing golf. And then one day my boss came in and said, yeah, we're going to take our clients on this incredible trip to the south of France. We're going to fly down uh, in a couple of weeks. We're going to fly down Friday morning to the south of France. We're going to fly into Nice. We're going to get into a car. We're going to stay at this amazing chateau. And we're going to then eat amazing food and drink some amazing wines. Actually, we booked some three Michelin-star restaurants because these clients are really important. And there's only like three or four going to take to entertain these clients. I thought, this is amazing. This is why I'm a lawyer. And... <laughs> And I thought, this is fantastic. And I was so excited. And then as he was leaving the room, he went, oh, I've got to say, of course, it's a golf trip. You can play golf, right? I thought, yes, I can. <laughs> and it was be great. Bring your clubs. So deep panic set in my life straight away at that point. I'd never picked up a golf club except really bad mini putt-putt golf. 
And so I went home to see my, my mum the next weekend, and I knew there was a golf course down the road from her, because I'd seen this little sign saying golf course. And I went up Friday, I took a lot of cash with me, I remember, and I walked into the golf uh, course and went into the golf shop. I'd never been in a golf shop in my life, didn't know what it was. I just went up to the till and went, I need to learn to play golf. And they went, uh, okay, well, we have uh, you know, lessons, you can book someone. I went, no, 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 I need to learn to play golf this weekend. And they went, what do you mean? I said, well, I need to play golf this weekend. I'm, I'm going on a tournament in the south of France in a couple of weeks, and I need to learn to play golf. And he went, you're crazy. I went, Ugh. So I said, look, I've got money. <laughs> and he went, oh, okay, great. So um, he said, look, this is what we're going to do. Have you ever played golf before? Never. And he said, so you know you can't play golf. I have no idea how to play golf. He said, well, here's how it's going to work. Um, we've got 48 hours and I'm going to teach you to play golf. The golf pro looked at my cash and went, great, I'm going to cancel everything else, and I'm going to teach you to play golf. But he said to me this, he said, look, for the next 48 hours, you do exactly what I say. You don't have anything to contribute because what you think is playing golf, you probably have no idea. And so we went down to the golf range, and he said, look, pick up a golf uh, stick. So I went, great, and I, I picked it up, and he went, no, 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 you have no idea, do you? I went, no. He said, just follow me. Right? He said, this is how you grip it. And I gripped it, he went, no, 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 you're doing it wrong, follow me, do it like this. I said, do it like, what, what on earth is this? And I did this, he said, now stance like this, and then pull it away, and I did this, he went, no, you don't. So I realized everything I was contributing was wrong. He was the expert. And he said, look, you're gonna have a great trip, you're gonna have an amazing experience in the south of France, but only if you follow what I say. And so for the next 48 hours, I followed what he said. Every now and again, I thought, gosh, gosh, this, sounds really, this feels really awkward. I'll do it my way. And at that point, if he was Jesus, he would have rebuked me and said, get behind me. Right? Get back in line. You're out of position. You have to realize that you don't know how to play this game. You need to trust me. And so for 48 hours I did, I was learning and he gave me the basics and I went down to the south of France in the, a couple of weeks later and I was, I was pretty bad, but I could hold it together and it was a great trip. But only because I trusted him to be in charge. I trusted him. That he knew the way and I didn't. And in a similar way, Jesus is saying when it comes to life, when it comes to relationships, when it comes to power, when it comes to sex, when it comes to money, when it comes to relationships, when it comes to your future, when it comes to politics and government and justice, follow me. I am the author of life. I've come to defeat evil and death. Life is now found in following me. Tim Keller writes this, he said, as a child blossoms under the authority of a wise and good parent, as a team flourishes under the direction of a skillful, brilliant coach, so when you come under the authority, the, the healing of the royal hands, under the kingship of Jesus, everything in your life will begin to heal. And when he comes back, everything sad will, become, will come untrue. His return will usher in the end of fear, suffering, and death. Jesus is saying to Peter, 
you think you know the way to life, but actually if you do this, it will, you'll lose it. Jesus has come not just to defeat sin and evil on the cross, but to be our king, to be that good, beautiful, kind, generous king who leads his people into the life that they were created for. This Christmas, the question is, who are you trusting with your life? Who is the king of your life? Is it still yourself? I know in my life, I've given my life to Jesus. I've said you are king, and yet I know there are parts of my life I'm still hanging on to the crown. Do I trust him? Ignatius of Loyola said simply this, sin is the unwillingness to trust that what God wants from me is only my deepest happiness. I'm still confessing my sin. Jesus, do I trust you with this? Do I trust you as the king of my life? The great invitation of Christmas is to follow him. I remember reading a book by Donald Miller a long time ago. And then I want to finish with this story that I still see it itself in my memory because it helped me what it means to follow him. Donald Miller wrote this. He said, a long time ago, I went to a concert. And between songs, the folk singer told a story that helped me resolve some things about God. The story was about his friend who was a Navy SEAL. The folk singer said his friend was performing a covert operation freeing hostages from a building in some dark part of the world. His friend's team flew in by helicopter, made their way to the compound and stormed into the room where the hostages had been imprisoned for months. The room, the folk singer said, was filthy and dark. The hostages were curled up in a corner, terrified. And when the seals entered the room, they heard the gasps of the hostages. They stood at the door and called to the prisoners, telling them they were Americans. The seals asked the hostages to follow them, but the hostages wouldn't. They sat there on the floor and hid their eyes in fear. They were not of healthy mind and didn't believe their rescuers were really Americans. The seals stood there, not knowing what to do. They couldn't possibly carry everyone out. Until one of the seals the folk singer's friend, got an idea. He put down his weapon, took off his helmet, and curled up tightly next to the other hostages, getting so close his body was touching some of theirs. He softened the look on his face and put his arms around them. He was trying to show them he was one of them. None of the prison guards would have done this. He stayed there for a little while until some of the hostages started to look at him, finally meeting his eyes. The Navy SEAL whispered that they were Americans and were there to rescue them. Will you follow us, he said. The hero stood to his feet, and one of the hostages did the same, then another, until all of them were willing to go. And then the story ends with all the hostages safe on an American aircraft carrier. This Christmas we remember that for God so loved the world that he sent his son to come to us in our darkness, to take on our flesh and to draw close to us. 
to die the death that we deserved, to defeat sin and evil that we can't, and wraps up close to us in his love. And into our ears he whispers, will you follow me? Will you follow me that I may lead you out of darkness? That as you follow me and get behind me, I will lead you into life, into freedom. Whether you've never followed Jesus, or whether you're like me, there's still areas of your life that you've been holding back. Do you hear the invitation of Jesus next to us, in the flesh, in love? Follow me. Let's stand together.